Good morning. It's a joy to see you all this morning. The children are released to Children's Church if you'd like them to go. They'll be going back to the foyer again, and you can follow the teachers out there to the classroom. Of course, they're always welcome to stay. They have a nice, brand-new, non-slick walkway to walk on. So thank you all for bearing with the, uh, the different construction we've had. We're going to be doing something a little bit different this morning. I'm going to be breaking from our regularly scheduled program. Um, my preaching schedule, the new one, is up in the back. We're going to be preaching, uh, I'm going to be preaching a sermon uh, that I think is going to be important. I want to do it with as much grace and love as I can, so I'm going to actually try not to, I'll try, okay, no promises here, I will try not to sound actually too maybe preachy, if you will, um, like I said, I, I no promises there, but I'm going to try and be kind of even-keeled because of the nature of the topic we will be discussing. So I'm going to try my best. I don't want it to sound like I'm screaming at anybody or, or putting anybody down. Uh, I want love and the love of Christ to show through my words and how I say them. So on November 13th, 2013, Hawaii became the 15th state in America to legalize same-sex marriage. Became the 15th state to legalize same-sex marriage. Now, it's not my general practice, and nor do I want it to be, to preach on specific sins, unless I'm working through a series, for fear of elevating one above another and maybe giving an improper view scripturally of what and how we respond to certain sins. For instance, I'm not going to be taking a break to talk about drunkenness in a few weeks. More than likely, unless I find Uncle Lance passed out up here. So it's, I, it's not my normal practice to do that, but due to the nature of what's been going on in our state, due to the nature of the things I know that some of you might struggle with, some of our students in high school are being bombarded with different ideas, I find it necessary to, in essence, contend for the faith with you and give some maybe formal instruction on what scripture actually says and doesn't say pertaining to homosexuality and marriage. So on one hand, I want to uphold biblical marriage primarily and the gospel of Christ. On the other hand, I would like to just address homosexuality, not attack people. And this is so important, brothers and sisters, that we get this right. These are people People who claim homosexuality as their identity are people made in the image of God. These are families, real families, sons, daughters, husbands, wives that are affected by this issue. So when we speak about it, whether with one another or with coworkers, we are talking about real people whose lives are being destroyed by this issue. It's not just this pie in the sky. This is down low, right here, right now issue. So we want to be so gracious in how we do it. I waited. I waited to discuss it. Uh, it would have been my second sermon as a pastor um, if I had preached it. I waited to discuss it because passions, tensions in November are running high already. People are flaring at the nostrils. It's like you say, I disagree with this and all of a sudden, KKK, he's got a pillowcase in his car. And you're like, no, 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 I'm, I'm not trying to be like that. Uh, I'm just trying to be gentle. So I waited until after a few months. Now time's died down. I've prayed. This seems to be a good place to take the break in between chapters 1 and chapters 2 of Philippians. Even though it's not the natural passage break, it seemed to be a good place for me to address this now. So... How am I going to do it? One of the things I did, and this is also not normal, but I hope I explain and you'll see why, is all of my points will be verbatim from another sermon preached by another pastor who's far 
wiser and more gracious than I am, John Piper, in his sermon, Let Marriage Be Held in Honor, verbatim. So if you're like taking notes, you're like, he, he took this, okay, right up front, not, not hiding it, uh, verbatim from his sermon. This is why I go through great pains. I know that I'm young, and, and young preachers have the, the tendency to fire off with their mouth and words and say things maybe a little too harsh, maybe a little too, you name it, offensive. And I recognize that is a possible tendency for me, so really to protect you and to protect me, this subject is so sensitive. So sensitive that I, the last thing I want to do is fire off a statement in 5, 10, 20 years. I look back and say, that was so dumb. <laughs> Why did I ever even? So that's to protect you. Of course, interspersed will be um, from me explaining and different things like that. So just wanted to put that out there. Now, believers, brothers and sisters, when we come to this type of sermon. All of us, we have to recognize, are prone to two things. We're like the pendulum on a clock, swinging left and right. Sometimes we swing far to the other side, and we get way too excited to talk about this issue. It consumes our minds. We think, yeah, yeah, talk about it, preach it, biblical marriage, homosexuality, sin. Yes, we get really excited on this end. And then the other end is total passivity, total acceptance. God is love. We should never talk about these types of controversial things in the pulpit. No, we don't do that. That's the other side. My desire is that we would bring that to the center, a little more balanced, that we stand for truth, but graciously as we proclaim the gospel. Not snarling, not blood pressure flaring, not eyes popping out, not total passivity but we speak truth in love, standing firm together, striving side by side for the sake of the gospel. One of the other reasons that makes this so difficult to address is the issue, it touches many, many other issues, but ultimately it'll touch the issue of authority. Who is your authority? Now here, we will proclaim that the Bible is our supreme authority for faith and practice. That's what we proclaim. Functionally, I'll ask, who is your authority? Who is your authority? Here's a way to find out. Who do I listen to or what or who do I go to the most to help form my thoughts and ideas? In other words, if we read Scripture for maybe five minutes a day, for a total of less than 20 minutes a week, it's hard to claim that Scripture is our functional authority. Now, my desire is that by the power of the Spirit, we would move in that direction, that we would move that Fox, CNN, Yahoo News, um, Maui News, whatever newspaper source, and your friends and your own upbringing kind of brings and molds your thinking on certain subjects, that we would start to let Scripture mold us and help us to think as we ought to think, to be renewed in our minds. So it's an issue of authority. And for this authority, I unashamed, unashamed, right out front, for all my visitors here, or you're not a member here, or you're just checking out the church, unashamed, Scripture will be the authority for us here in this church. It's where we will get our beliefs, where we will get our knowledge about God, about how to relate to one another. It will be the Scripture. If you have more questions, those are great questions to ask. We can do it after. So my desire will be with others to let marriage be held in honor. Hebrews 13, 4, let marriage be held in honor among all. Let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulteress. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray that you would... Uh, Fill us with your spirit here, that we would speak words that are honoring to Christ and that in the middle of this controversial subject, this subject that is so heated at times that the power of the gospel to save would shine through, that Christ saves sinners no matter what. 
And Lord, I pray that you would work in all of us, believer and unbeliever alike, the heart and commitment to live a life of repentance and turning to Jesus. Lord, may my words be grace-filled. May you help us to concentrate and think soberly about these things. For your name and your glory, amen. All right, number one. I've got eight. Number one. Marriage is created and defined by God in the scriptures as the sexual and covenantal union of a man and woman in a lifelong allegiance to each other alone as husband and wife with a view to displaying Christ's covenant relationship to his church with a view to displaying Christ's relationship to the church. Point number one. So that's marriage created and defined by God. This is how the Baptist faith and message, which is our articles of faith, defines marriage. Marriage is the uniting of one man and one woman in a covenant commitment for a lifetime. It is God's unique gift to reveal the union between Christ and his church, and to provide for the man and a woman in marriage the framework for intimate companionship, the channel of sexual expression according to biblical standards and the means for procreation of the human race. So that's one point. That's Baptist faith and message stance, marriage, one man, one woman. What ultimately matters is does the Bible say that? Does the Bible agree with that? So if you have scripture, if you have an iPhone, whatever, Genesis chapter 1, flip there, turn there, press your buttons there. Genesis chapter 1, and then have a finger or a piece of paper into Genesis chapter 2, and then flip over to New Testament, put another piece of paper in there, Gen uh, Matthew 19, Matthew chapter 19, and then stick another piece of paper into Ephesians chapter 5. That's kind of, we're going to run through all those passages. Again, if you, have, if you don't have a Bible, there should be a blue one around you or a black one around you. Take it. If somebody next to you doesn't have a Bible, share with them. It's so important because this is what we believe the Word of God is. First, Genesis 1, 27 to 28. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So first we see, here's creation. God caps off his creation with the creation of man. And he said, we will make him in our image. That's utterly important. I won't spend long on that, other, only to say that you, male, female, were created to reflect God. We're created to be a little reflection of God. And he created male and female together to complete that reflection. Genesis 2, 23 to 24. Genesis 2, 23 to 24. So God just created male and female. Genesis 1 was like that overarching view. Now Genesis 2 hones in on that creation. Genesis 2, 23 to 24. God, so you remember Adam named all the animals and, and God paraded them before him and there was not a helper suitable for Adam. Some of you women on our Tuesday night Bible studies are going to help her by design at six at our cottage. This is where it's getting from, where it's coming from. And here's what God does with Eve. After he presents him to Adam, Adam says this. Then the man said, this is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Note this key word, therefore, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. That word, therefore, links 
Adam and Eve's pattern marriage to all humanity that would come after. Not just talking about these two, but whatever you guys, whoever comes after, that's your own thing. He's linking it there. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And for all of us romantic types in here, men, if you're gruff or you're tough and you say, we just, you know, babe, I make the, I make the money, I come home, I don't have to say I love you because, you know, uh, everything I do shows you I love. No. Men, here's biblical manhood. Sing over your wives. This is actually a song or a poem that Adam sung over his wife for joy. So look to your left, look to your right at your husband and wife. Look at them. And it's okay to tell them you love them and to write poems for them. It's okay. It's not effeminate. It's biblical. That's all you get, women. Sorry, next time. Mother's Day, we'll get more. So there's bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, complementarity. In creation, God set man, God set woman together to display his image. And that would be the pattern. Is that right? Am I on the right track? Well, Jesus picks up on the same strand of reasoning in Matthew chapter 19. So let's go there. Jesus actually links these two passages together for us. Matthew 19, 4 to 6. I don't know if it will be up on the screen. Don't necessarily count on it. Mr. Wizard's doing the best he can back there. Um, Matthew 19, 4 to 6. He answered, Jesus answered, Have you not read that he who created, that's God, that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So Jesus, weaving these truths together for us, one man, one woman, covenant commitment to a lifetime, links that institution with creation. So to rebel against that institution is to rebel against God's created order. And we do that, brothers and sisters, in numerous ways long before the homosexual agenda ever came into picture and how we justify divorce after divorce after divorce. We have not held marriage in honor long before the state didn't. Jesus picking up on that. What God has joined together, let not man separate. And it's that very point that Paul in the book of Romans chapter 1, rebelling against creation, the creator, it's that very point that Paul will argue in Romans 1, 18 to 32. We won't go there. Crucial passage, just don't have time. Write it down, one, Romans 1, 18 to 32. Next, so that's Jesus picking up on that strand. Now we'll move to Paul, Ephesians chapter 5, 24 to 32. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Because we are members of his body. Therefore, here we go again. A man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. The two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. 
and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. That phrase there is worth 10 sermons. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying it refers to Christ and the church. That means way back in Genesis, long before the church ever existed, long before anything took place, Christ died. God created man, male, and woman, female, for the purpose of ultimately displaying his relationship of Jesus Christ with his blood-bought church. Wow, that mystery changes everything. Everything. It should just cause us to just stop and worship that God would do and orchestrate things so. Excuse me. It is this picture of Christ and the church that God had intended in eternity past. I'm so sorry. That God had intended in eternity past to portray his love for his bride. When we change, when we alter that image, not only are we rebelling against created order, against God, we are perverting the image of Christ in the church. We are perverting the image of Christ in the church. Men, take note. This passage is for you. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Ladies, I'll give you another freebie here. Okay, I'm going to give you another freebie here. Men or women, yes, you are commanded to submit to your husbands. And that can sound like a scary thing. But husbands, you are commanded to use your authority for the good, for the building up, for the serving, for loving her and sacrificing yourself for her the way Christ did for the church. And when you do that, you will find your wife joyfully submit to you in anything. She will joyfully submit to you in anything. So men, love your wives. Learn what it means to love your wives like Christ loved the church. It'll transform your families, I guarantee. Women, that was free. It's not even part of the sermon, so I'm going to come back now. That means that gender roles... If this is so, if this is how God created male, female to reflect his image, that means gender roles are not interchangeable. They are not interchangeable. That means God created women with a specific function and gifting and men with a specific function and gifting that together they would portray the glory of Christ in the church. So therefore, we cannot interchange them without consequence. So marriage, marriage is created and defined by God in the scriptures as a sexual and covenantal union of a man and woman in lifelong allegiance to each other alone as husband and wife with a view to displaying Christ's covenant relationship to his blood-bought church. So if that's true, if God created it so, then that means there is no such thing as same-sex marriage, and it would be wise not to call it that. That's number two. There is no such thing as so-called same-sex marriage, and it would be wise not to call it that. God defines marriage, not the state. God defines marriage, not the state, not our own personal thoughts or opinions or feelings. As believers in Christ, God has defined marriage. Thank you so much. Dora the Explorer. Thank you. The state doesn't define it, and when the fundamentals of marriage are changed so much so that you have male, male, female, female, it ceases to be marriage in God's eyes no matter what anybody calls it. I'm reminded, who of you, do I have any literature buffs in here? People are like, I just love Tale of Two Cities. I just love The Great Gatsby and Frankenstein and, and Alice in Wonderland. Anybody like that in here? I see some chuckles. I'm going to think yes. I'm reminded of Alice in Wonderland and Through the Looking Glass when Alice comes and she encounters Humpty Dumpty, the egg. Remember Humpty Dumpty had a great fall? Humpty Dumpty, yeah, I don't know. 
the rest of it. Humpty Dumpty, she's talking to this egg on the wall, and they're having a conversation, and all of a sudden, he makes something that, he makes a statement that makes zero sense to her. And she says, what does that mean? And his reply to her is, when I use a word, it means exactly what I want it to mean, no more and no less. Alice replies, the question is, can you make words mean whatever you want them to mean? And he replied back with some other weird because <laughs> he's Humpty Dumpty. We could call it an Alice in Wonderland way of defining things. Can we, do we have the right to make ceremonies, institutions, words, what God has defined mean whatever we want them to mean? I would say absolutely not, without great consequence. Two, there's no such thing as so-called same-sex marriage. It would be wise not to call it that. Three, same-sex desires and same-sex orientation. So we got desires and orientation are part of our broken and disordered sexuality owing to God's subjection of the created order to futility because of man's sin. What's he getting at here? There's often the question, well, are they born that way? Is it genetic? Is it nurture? Is it how they were raised? Is it a little bit of both? For some reason, the media and the outside world and us in the church have gotten the notion that if it shows that it's genetic, that you're born predisposed like that with an orientation, that somehow it is therefore okay. What's the phrase, God made me this way? What he's arguing here and what scripture would argue here is that all of our disordered desires, all of our passions or temptations to things against God's will are owing to sin's effect in all creation. So, Genesis 2, God presents Adam and, or with his wife Eve. He sings over her. It's joyful. It's happy. Yay! Happily ever after. No, Genesis 3, Fall, sin, rebellion against God. And all the Old Testament documents the horrors of what happens to creation when sin entered. It totally disordered everything that God had intended for it. Romans 8 says, all of creation groans waiting for redemption, death, destruction, Anger, bitterness, adultery, idolatry, all of it, the result of sin. Here's the picture. Have you, has anybody ever seen a flat, calm lake surrounded by trees, maybe out camping, one of the Minnesota lakes or Yosemite or something like that? Just flat and calm like glass. That, I haven't seen that ever. I've just seen it in pictures. That is a picture of the calm and peace and beauty of creation before sin. The closest I've seen is my bathtub after I run it full of water before I put my son in. Once he goes in there, oh, ripples everywhere, splashes, destruction and carnage in the bathroom. Sin and creation was like slamming a meteor into that lake. The ripple effects and damage go out as far as the eye can see and mind can imagine. Was sin's effects on the world. And it has different effects on all of us. We all have different predispositions. Some of us are just inclined to be angry. When I drive, you cut me off. My initial inclination, the way I was born, is I see an act of injustice against me, and I want to rage against him. Oh, you know how to drive. What's going on? Somebody call the police, bro. Get anger. Or when you go to the beach, the struggle that all men have to see women flaunting their bodies. And you think, well, it's natural. That's the way I was made. It's not natural, and it's not 
pleasing to God, even though the effects of sin on your mind have caused you to lust after these things. <clears throat> so sorry. All these disordered desires are the effects of sin. Rick Warren was in an interview. The news anchor asked him that question. If it comes to show that it's, we're born this way, that they, they find and they prove, will you change your stance? And Rick Warren's response was no. And after the news anchor about had a heart attack, it was like, ah, no, I can't believe you did this. I can't believe you. Oh, my goodness. I... And he said, hold on. Let me explain. I, Rick Warren said this, I have the desire to have sex with every beautiful woman I meet. Nobody would say that that's okay. Nobody would say that that's healthy just because I was born with that desire. And so it is with this. Our all sexual disorder is owing to the effects of the fall on all of creation. That means that it's that desire, so whether somebody's born that way with same-sex attraction as their primary orientation, if that comes out, if that's the case, that desire or struggle in and of itself is not sin. You tracking with me so far? So when I go to the beach, a woman walks in front of me, the desire to look at her, that initial desire is not sin. An effect of the fall, yes. Rooted in sin, yes. But am I sinning because I have that initial struggle? No. It's what I do at that moment with that desire that will determine whether I sin or not. If I say with Job, I have made a covenant with my eyes that I will not look lustfully at a woman, then I honor God and I show that to live is Christ. If I choose to ogle and ooh and all and use that woman as, as an object in my mind, then I have sinned against God and against her. Same-sex desires and orientation are part of our broken and disordered sexuality owing to God's subjection of the created order to futility because of man's sin. That was three. Four. Therefore, same-sex intercourse, not same-sex desire, is the focus of Paul's condemnation when he threatens exclusion from God's kingdom. Same-sex intercourse, not same-sex desire, is the focus of Paul's condemnation when he threatens exclusion from the kingdom. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 10. I'll read it for you. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Brothers and sisters, let that ring through to you again, whether you're in high school, middle school, grad school, or a senior. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor idolaters, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. What I want you to notice there is first, it's not singled out. It's not as if Paul just says, brothers, only homosexuals will not inherit the kingdom of God. There's a whole host of sins that if I started touching on each and every one of these, we would all hopefully feel some sting of conviction. But his point is men who practice, who regularly participate in and never repent, never see a problem with it, these types of actions will exclude you from the kingdom of God. So the issue is not what is your sin struggle. The issue is are you living a life of repentance? We all struggle with sin. If you were to say, who are you to judge their sin? Yes, I am nobody I am trying to live a life of repentance and obedience to Christ. And he asks and commands you to do the same. So it is not singled out. And we must be important. It's, it's so crucial that we don't cave 
to modern renderings or reading into the text arguments that were never there. So, for example, we don't have time to address these in detail. Not referring to, it's not referring to temple prostitutes. It's not referring to gang rape or non-consensual sex. It's not referring to somebody who violates their own orientation as what's so often being explained. They'll say, well, Paul doesn't, ex doesn't condemn this. What he says is, well, if it's a homosexual who was born this way and goes against nature to be heterosexual, that's what Paul condemns. No, that's, that's modern reading into the text, trying to justify what was never there. Paul had in mind consensual homosexual sex when he wrote this. Brothers, do not be deceived. Do not be deceived. For other passages in the New Testament that talk about it, I already mentioned Romans 1, 18 to 32. Another one would be 1 Timothy 1, 9 to 10. 1 Timothy 1, 9 to 10. All of these are Old Testament, or all of these are New Testament. None of them you'll find right next to it the command not to wear garments that are woven together of different fabrics or the commands not to eat shellfish. These are all New Testament, all endorsed. And I would say all of those in the Old Testament are also endorsed too, but that's Another sermon for another time. And then one more note. There's often the, the claim, Jesus never even mentioned homosexuality. He never even mentioned it. How can you say that this is so important or the Bible talks about it? Jesus never even thought to mention it. I would take issue with that. Mark 7, 21. Mark 7, 21. Jesus said, from within, out of the heart comes evil thoughts sexual immorality. That word, porneia, sexual immorality, porneia, that is a catch-all for all sexual activity outside of marriage. Jesus didn't have to say, well, I meant bestiality, I meant incest, I meant homosexuality, because all the listeners would have understood those are not game. They all would have understood that naturally. It's, it'd be like me saying, hey, everybody in here, all who attended today, I'm going to give everybody $1,000 after the service if you come see me and shake my hand. I'm going to give everybody $1,000. And then you come, yeah, everybody's like, yeah, is that true? No. And then you'd all come up there, and then it's like somebody coming up and saying, hey, I'm here to get my $1,000. And I'd be like, nope, nope, I didn't say your name. I didn't say Raymond, come get the $1,000. But, but you said everybody, right but I didn't say your name. That's the way the argument goes. It doesn't make sense. Jesus condemned all sexual activity outside of heterosexual marriage in Mark 7. Therefore, number four, same-sex intercourse, not same-sex desire, is the focus of Paul's condemnation when he threatens exclusion from the kingdom of God. This is where it gets, now we're getting more practical and practical. This is important. <clears throat> number five, therefore, it would contradict love and contradict the gospel of Jesus to approve homosexual practice, whether by silence or by endorsing so-called same-sex marriage, or by affirming the Christian ordination of practicing homosexuals. It would contradict love to affirm any form of that. Why? Because to do so damns whoever's practicing it. It brings them under the judgment of God. They are, it's saying, you're okay, God loves you, you can live this way and be totally pleasing to God. And we lie to those people when we say that's okay. True love desires the other, the object, to be utterly joyful utterly happy, utterly satisfied in the best satisfactory things, which is God. So we desire the best for others, not judgment. So when I see my son walking to a stove that's hot, he may want it because it's pretty and red and nice and, and warm and he's cold, but if, he, if I don't stop him, I'm not loving him. If I don't tell him, Titus, stop and I stand back and do nothing and say, son, you work on those desires. You, you learn how, no, that is not loving. 
And it contradicts love to affirm these things that bring judgment on others. This isn't also something we just disagree over, like we would disagree over baptism, or over the nature of the rapture, or the millennium. It's not the same, same issue, it's not the same category of freedom, because none of those things will condemn somebody to judgment or the wrath of God. But this, this does. At its root, it's a rebelling against the Creator. It's a rebelling against what he said is good. Therefore, it is a form of selfishness, which is idolatry. And no idolater will inherit the kingdom of God or can claim the name of Christ. And it be okay. Number six. Number six. This is, the, this is probably my favorite and the best and most important point, believer, that you can anchor on. Number six. The good news of Jesus is that God saves heterosexual and homosexual sinners who trust Jesus by counting them righteous because of Christ and by helping them through his spirit live lives that are pleasing to him even amidst their disordered brokenness. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. That's the heart of the message. We aim. We aim to see transform hearts before we see transform lives. That's why if somebody came in, two males came in, I would rebuke any one of you that disdained them, that disdained them before you gave them the gospel that moved away from them instead of towards them in love. Because what does verse 11 of 1 Corinthians 6 say? And such were some of you. And such were some of you. The gospel is the power of God to save sinners no matter how long they've been walking down one particular course of life to transform their hearts, believer, and such were some of you. When we move away or we treat those who struggle with same-sex attraction as a subset of Christians or as worse than any other sin we struggle with, we deny the gospel and its power and practice. Brothers and sisters, camp on that one word, were. Not and such are. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So the ultimate issue, as I said, is not your sin, it's will you repent of it. And if we're honest, Christ demands all of us, heterosexual, homosexual, to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow him. If it's not hard for you to deny yourself, brother and sister, in your heterosexual marriage, you are not following Jesus some way, shape, or form. The gospel is not harder for homosexuals than it is for heterosexuals. We all deny ourselves. We all live in daily reliance on the grace and mercy of our great high priest, Jesus Christ. Seven, deciding what actions will be made legal or illegal through civil law is a moral activity aiming at the public good and informed by the worldview of each participant. Deciding what actions will be made legal or illegal through civil law is a moral activity aiming at the public good and informed by the worldview of each participant. Because all of us would come up to this point and say, yeah, I agree with that. Amen. Yes. But then we'll start to part ways. We shouldn't push our views on somebody else, though. So. <coughs> I don't know what's going on. I'm sorry, guys. We shouldn't push our views on somebody else. We shouldn't force others. Why should you cram your religion down my throat? This is where we start to part ways sometimes. And I want to draw us all in to see all civil law, all legislation is a moral activity. 
It's all based on a worldview. So every voter who goes in to vote has some sort of belief that dictates what they think is good. So then all voting is moral voting. We legislate morality on all levels. So what are some things we can consider then to what things we make laws or what would benefit the public good? Well, here's some things to consider. The rec recognition of this same-sex marriage would be a clear and is a clear social statement that motherhood and fatherhood are both negligible in the raising of children. <clears throat> so we look at God's order. We see Genesis 1, Genesis 2, Matthew 19, the words of Paul. And we say, we see them all affirming motherhood, fatherhood as the foundation for all human society, the family. And when we endorse same-sex marriage, we say all that doesn't matter in the raising of children and is inconsequential. I would say that's very unwise and very risky, and it is our children who will pay the price of that. Something else to consider. Since it is the fundamental institution of all society, its connections with all other parts of society are innumerable. Are innumerable. So to pretend that same-sex marriage can exist will send ripple effects of dysfunction across all strands of society, most of which are now unforeseen. Most of which are now unforeseen. If you want a taste of what it will do in society, there's actually a short documentary from Boston, Massachusetts, having had it for about 14 years, and they trace all of the effects that they're seeing. Here's a few that are playing out in the public schools, actually being endorsed in literature without letting the parents know, without needing any consent. They're endorsing multiple partners, promiscuity. Literature actually describes to young people how to perform sexual acts. And it normalizes all of these things. It normalizes all of these things as if they're okay. Hawaii schools are already struggling with this. Already struggling with this. In Boston, the domestic abuse budget, the domestic abuse budget in Boston now has its own line item for same-sex couples. In other words, they don't just lump it together with regular domestic abuse. They have their own portion of the budget now that is ever increasing because of the problems this is causing. Before now, as far as we know, no society in history has ever defined and normalized marriage as between two members of the same sex. No nation in history. The only thing that is guiding us is knowledge that unrighteousness destroys nations. Destroys nations. That was number seven. Deciding what actions will be made legal or illegal through civil laws, a moral activity aiming at the public good and informed by the worldview of each participant. Brothers and sisters, do not be intimidated then to vote in accordance with what God says is good for families in the society. For fear that somebody will say, you're just shoving your belief down my throat. That's what all legislation is. Number eight. Number eight. We're almost done. Thank you for being patient. It'll be a long time probably before I revisit this. <clears throat> Don't press the organization of the church or her pastors into political activism. Pray that the church and her ministers would feed the flock of God with the word of God centered on the gospel of Christ, crucified and risen, 
Expect from your shepherds, not that they would rally you behind political candidates or legislative initiatives, but that they would point you over and over and over again to God and his word and to the cross. And to the cross. What's the point here? The point is that, yes, I preach on this because it is in the word of God. It falls underneath my task to preach the whole counsel of God, and at times there will be blending with the political sphere. But it is not my primary task, it is not my primary task to be politically involved. I am not here to rally you behind a certain party or a certain cause. I am here to preach what God's word says and show you how it bears on your life. And I don't mean, when I do that, to diminish the impact of the church. The goal is to increase it. The goal is to increase the impact of the church in this community because true change in a society comes from the inside out. As your heart is affected and transformed by the gospel and you are brought more and more into Christ-likeness, then you start voting differently. Then you start acting differently. Then you start proclaiming Christ with your life in all spheres of society. And that will be our aim here. Brothers and sisters, and such were some of you. Rejoice in Christ this morning. If you are here and you struggle with same-sex attraction, then talk to one of us. May this be a community that can be open about the reality of our struggles. You are no different than me who struggles with lust any other way. If you are repenting and coming to Christ. If you know somebody like that, Maybe they're an unbeliever. If you know somebody like that, brothers and sisters, move towards them with the gospel. Wrap your arms around them and love them. Your goal is not to turn them straight. Your goal is to get them to Jesus. Your goal is to get them to Jesus through any means in his word. We are here to love each other and the world, to be salt and light. And such were some of you. I'm going to be over here to my right in this room praying. They're going to come up and sing. If you want to respond anyway, you can. I'll pray with you. But may we just respond in worship at what God has done that all of us are not who we were, that he is making us more and more into the image of Christ. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for the patience of your people. Lord, may your word stand in their hearts. May they be convicted as they look inward and see their own struggle with sin. And then, Lord, as that conviction gives rise to guilt, may they bring that back to Jesus. And know you paid for that. You changed them. They are not who they used to be. You sanctify them. You wash them in the blood of Christ. Lord, may we rejoice at that. Lord, may you help us to hold marriage in honor as a picture of Christ in the church. Lord, I ask that Christ would be proclaimed and that you would be honored this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.